I get to the point where I'm letting people know the way forward. And just as I'm maybe about 10, 15% of the way through just explaining that, the fire alarm goes off in the building that's <laughs> never gone off before, ever. And it wasn't just, woo, it was like, evacuate. A voice comes over, it's creepy, but evacuate the building. This is not a drill. Evacuate the building. And I just looked up and said, good one. You got me again. You got me again. This is Super Fast Business with James Schramko. James Helping you build your business super fast. James Schramko here. Welcome to superfastbusiness.com. This is episode 888 and there's a very special guest for today's episode. Brandon Elias, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. I'm really, really excited to be here. It's been a, a long time coming. And what episode number are we up to now, did you say? It's 888. And you know, to be clear, this was your episode. You've always wanted this episode. You've signaled this to me um, many years ago. You said, I want episode 888. Well, here you go. You've got it. Wonderful. And there's a reason for that. Why don't we sort of start off with why is episode 888 so important to you, Brendan? Okay, so very brief backstory. My dad was born in Singapore in 1935. When he was seven years old, the Japanese came invaded Singapore and he was held in the uh, internment camp and he had to learn different languages. He spoke four dialects of Chinese. He could sing in Japanese to the soldiers for cigarettes, which you would trade for a can of sardines and survive in the camps. And then when dad came to Australia in the 70s, he you know, was one of the only people who was connected to China. That you know, Australians were very backward back then. We were very isolated. So that he, um, you know, had always that connection with China and it just happened to be the number eights have always been lucky. When I was in university, I bought my first car. The number plate had, you know, multiple eights in it. And uh, yeah, it just happened to be uh, my dad's birthday is the 8th of February. So that just number has always come up. And before we move forward, let's call out the elephant in the room and just talk about something that's also happened in your eighth year since you've taken up surfing. I understand that you have achieved after all this time and effort, your first barrel. So on behalf of myself and probably all your listeners, congratulations on uh, nailing your first barrel the other day. Talk us through it. Yeah, okay. I'll I'll be more than happy to do that. I thought the elephant in the room was going to be that you're not actually Chinese. No. no. (laughs) But um, we're going to talk about your product and how that (laughs) relates to China. My barrel, look, it was uh, very emotional for me because when I started surfing at the age of 42, Obviously, I was pretty late to get into it, and it was difficult, and I applied myself every day. But the ultimate goal for a surfer, for most surfers, probably is to get barreled, and that's simply when you ride so deep into the wave that the wave throws over you and provides you shelter, and then you look out and you just see this round hole and you're going along the wave, and you've probably seen GoPro videos of it, and a lot of my clients send me videos like that from famous uh, waves that have that from Namibia, like Skeleton Bay, etc. Anyway, for me... It's been a a really difficult thing to do. There's so much you have to do to get to that point from literal flexibility of your body to be able to crouch down or to recognize, you know, wavecraft, to recognize when the wave's about to do that, to getting the right equipment that's good enough for you to get into the wave and then to find a wave like that that's not overly crowded. And then there's, of course, the potential of quite a lot of carnage, like damage. When I was walking down to the surf that day, a guy was coming up the hill with two pieces of his board, like snapped in half. Oh, no. So you know it's on. So there's a lot of adrenaline and there's the possibility. Is today the day? And uh, it started out not that great. I was freezing cold because normally I'm surfing with no T-shirt up here and uh, it was raining because it was this sort of typhoon, cyclone swell. 
and um, I was really cold. So I, instead of walking around to the longest spot, I went to the sort of closest spot to get into the water because the water's way warmer than the air. And I basically went down over some uh, rocks and I jumped into this place called the Boiling Pot. And uh, it turns out that's really for advanced surfers. <laughs> it's like these huge waves come in with whitewash and they just drag you out along very quickly. And I had to duck dive seven or eight waves in a row. And I got swept back down to the beach fairly quickly with no result. And then I walked back around and several kilometers to walk back around. And I went in a little bit easier spot this time off the sand. Still got swept around and I sort of tried to fight for a few waves, but there's always three or four other people on the wave come in. And then my third time around, I was getting pretty tired by now. Like just for um, perspective, in this session, I clocked up seven and a half kilometers. That's seven and a half kilometers of paddling or wow. walking. And then I went in and I went right out wide. I was sitting out way out by myself, like not near anyone else. And I'd just been watching a 100-foot wave on Binge TV. It's an HBO series about people catching 100-foot waves. So they were talking a lot about visualisation and the wave comes to them and stuff. And I'm like, I want the wave to come to me. And I looked in the horizon and there was this big black set of waves coming that were clearly too big for the people on the inside and they were going to get smashed. And I paddled across to meet it. And it just came and it just, it lifted me up and I paddled and I've been working with a friend of mine, Rick here on my paddle technique. And I've been practicing on this one board for discipline. And I put in the extra strokes, like he told me, and I got onto the wave and I stood up and it was a monster of a wave, like really well overhead, like probably double overhead at this point. And I went down and I was just screaming down the wave, like the fastest I've ever been on a surfboard. Wow. And I know this because I have a watch and it tracks the speed. And I went along and it just kept going and going and going. And then towards the end, it started to, I could see out of the corner of my eye, it was standing up. Yeah. And then I'm watching it coming over my head and then down onto the left. And then I could see this curtain just coming along and it just raced along and in front of me and there was this little hole and I was just aiming for it and in the end I don't know what happened but I got detonated and just basically the whole thing just exploded around me and I popped up and the guy who caught the wave behind me goes man what a wave and when I checked on my watch I'd clocked a speed of 35.9 kilometers an hour on that wave and it went for 340 meters Wow. So for the Americans, that's like probably 350 yards or something like that. It was the longest wave. It was the fastest wave. It was my first proper barrel. And you got it on film. Yeah, I went back home and I looked on the Surfline camera and I caught it at the end part of it. The part that I caught is just the end part of it. But it went for a long time before it actually, before I came into view. But that's the great thing with the technology. And I've been using that as a training method to review the camera. And to see, I could see what I'm doing wrong in my technique and I know how I would approach it next time. But to get to this stage, it's, you know, I've had so many people help me along the way from Christo Hall, you know, surf professional in the Maldives to Rick Cowley, who's my local surf coach here, friend, to Misfits and Rejects. My buddy's been sending me, I send him the clips and he sends me reviews from Costa Rica or from Los Angeles. He sends me what to change with my technique. I've actually been practicing trying to get into a barrel for the last two years. That means when I take off on a wave that's not going to barrel, I still take a barrel stance and pretend it's going to barrel 
so that I'm ready. And as it turns out, when I got into that wave and I, I just instinctively knew it's about to barrel and I got into that position, I was actually, when I got to the beach, I felt this well of emotion. I actually I was started to feel teary because this has been an eight-year goal or I prefer the word vision, but I've had that vision of me getting barreled for eight years. And the reason this is relevant for a business podcast is um, because I do think longer term than most people. I see things in advance before they happen. I bought a board that's for big waves that I had no chance of riding for seven years. That's the longest I've waited to ride a board, seven years. And I'm able to ride that board now. But I bought it seven years before I was able to ride it because like a kid buying adult shoes, I knew that I would grow into it. And so this wasn't a wasted story from the perspective of it shows you how I think and how I operate. But I've been meticulously learning, practicing, and visioning this moment for eight years. So when I actually achieved it, that's the next thing. It's like, what now? You asked me that question, what's next? Today, Noosa, tomorrow, Nazareth. Well, no, there's no chance of Nazareth. I'm going to put that out there. I'm actually happy. Like I could skip a surf here or there and now feel like I'm satiated. Until I had that barrel, it's not a box I can tick. It was not a box I can tick. So it meant so much to me. The only times I've sort of had a tear in my life really are when the birth of a child or the winning of a property deal under fierce auction environments or getting a barrel, like there's only a few times where I felt that emotional. And there'll be other times where I'm that emotional in the future, I'm sure, but it's such a rare moment and I've savored it. And everything around my life has been designed for that moment. And this is why I do what I do. These podcasts, the coaching, I want people to be able to design their life around doing things that make them happy and the business to be able to fuel that or fund it. That's why I put a course up on superfastresults.com, which is lifestyle secrets of a seven-figure daily surfer. It's free, just some of the things I've learned along the way. But I think more than anything, I've proven that you can kind of have it all. You can have great family, you can have great health, you can have great adventure and fun and still do work that you enjoy and bring in great income and build great wealth and assets. So, I mean, just, yeah, everything is like a fairy tale. Now, Enough about me, and thanks for asking about the barrel. I knew I was going to have to share this on a podcast episode, but I didn't know it would be on Triple Eight. Now, Brendan, you also help people. um, In summary, you're helping people learn how to import things. Initially, it was from China to other markets where they sell it on their own store or on Amazon, and then they make a profit. You know, they buy stuff, make a margin, and I think you teach them all the things on the way through that, like which product to select how much they should buy, where they should buy from, what are the logistics, how they, everything down to product shots of the things, how to follow up with the next range of products. And you've been doing this for quite some time. Is that a sort of general overview of what you do? Yeah, exactly. That's pretty accurate. Is that the A to Z of it? That's the A to Z of it, the A to Z for our American uh, viewers. But yeah, look, dad was an importer. I was supposed to be a lawyer. I went to law school. I hated it. I wasn't getting great marks. So I just started importing in law school. Then 2008, I put a video up on YouTube and it went nuts. And then 2009, I put a seminar on in the Medina Hotel in Sydney, in Central Station. And there were 50 seats and 150 turned up and the fire marshal was called and I got shut down, but I put one on the next one. And we've been going for 12 years and I don't know, done 500 seminars in pretty much every continent except Antarctica. Actually, we haven't done Africa. And um, yeah, it's been 500 different events over different places. And um, yeah, helping people import, really, choosing products, finding suppliers, 
negotiating, get a good quality, shipping it, all of that beautiful stuff. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, look, I've known you for quite a few years now. When you first came to me, you had really, really big hair. Like Velcro would have been a high risk area for you. Yeah. And you've got a keen sense of humor and you're very creative and you've been a great person to have around my life, giving me interesting perspectives that I wouldn't see if I didn't surround myself with such colorful characters. And over the years, you know, we've shared lots and lots of discussions about business. And I think there's some things that you're really good at and lessons learned along the way that might be really helpful for our audience. We've spent time in the Maldives. You've done scuba diving. We've shared moments out in the surf. You've come to my events, etc. Now, when we were at the last event that I ran, which was in March 2020, it was right at the time when the United States declared, uh, I think there were travel ban or borders closed. The Formula One pulled out of Australia. There was um, this very real sense that COVID was happening and going to be significant. And I immediately knew the significance of that. And I remember telling you at my event, I said, Brendan, this is huge. This will mean you can't do what you do right now, the way you do it. And I remember you were a little bit shocked at the time about it. Yeah. But because you, I think you know that when I know something, I really do believe in it and that it's probably going to be fairly accurate. Yeah. And I could tell instantly. And as fate would have it, when I was running that event, I was really thinking, I don't really want to do live events anymore. This is my last one. That's what I was thinking before this happened. But as it happened, it just put the nail in the coffin for me, to use a pretty ordinary cliche. Well, that was like the, that was the last indicator that this is the last physical event of that type for me for a long time, at least. I was still trying to do the Maldives thing because I love going to that. But for the most part, that was it. Now, in your case, you were running ads, you were booking events, you were staffing them, you had costs, obviously, and infrastructure all built around an in-person model. And then I've said to you, listen, Brendan, the world's going to change. And you, since then, I mean, we're a few years down the track almost, your life's very different now. I think you've been having, of all the people I know, actually, I think you're the most successful at mastering the online format for what you're doing, the way you do it. And I've been there with you along the way to see how this has happened. And, you know, there were some dark spots along the way because obviously, you know, the whole reality of that you just cannot you can't force this. It's not going to change instantly. So you've had to adapt. But I'm really proud of some of the things you've done and how you've adapted. And I think what I'd like to talk about is what have been the main insights that you've gleaned from this transition from in-person events to online events? Okay, excellent. So yeah, just to reiterate, you saw it. And even when you told me I was in a river in Egypt known as denial, <laughs> and I didn't believe it because I didn't want to believe it. And I had my head stuck, stuck deep in the sand. And uh, we definitely took a hit. I mean, we did a lot of live in-person events, which involved flying to different places. Flights were out, running a room with you know more than five people in it was out. So you, the cost structure just doesn't work to market an event where you're not allowed people in the room. And uh, yeah, it completely shut things down. Just on that, yeah. do you remember in our market, really it astounded me, but most event promoters were trying to work out how they can manipulate the event attendees in the spaces to still make events work. It's like they were really going against the grain. And in the end, they couldn't. It was not able to be done. But 
it fascinated me that people were so invested in their business model that that was the pathway, how they can still run events with, you know, five people in masks, three metres apart. Yeah. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, wake up. Yeah. I'm like, why were they so slow to adjust? And it really fascinated me. Yeah. And to your credit, you started looking at how the online's going to work because it was an inevitability. Yeah. Look, I was trying to train the horses to go faster when the car was invented, you know, to take the Henry Ford. That's a great metaphor. Yeah. And I was trying to, you know, what if I could do this many people in the room and all that? And it's just whatever happened, I just, I could just see it. There's just no way it was doing. So it was simply, okay, I know I can run events and I can do them well and I love doing them. And my attendees and students, they love them too. And then Zoom was taking off, right? So it was like screaming at me like Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. And it's like, that was an obvious move, but I was terrified. And so the first thing that I would say, the first insight is that, um, you know, it's often that dark place where you're afraid to look under the bed, right? The biggest value, that's where the chest of value and treasure is. And I was so scared because I've done live events in person. I love the stage. I love interacting with people. And that was the biggest insight that you could actually move from in-person to virtual and get this, it actually performs better on virtually any metric that you can measure, right? Students are happy because they can come in and out and if they need to, they don't have to fly anywhere. They don't have to park their car and pay $80 an hour for expensive parking down at Circular Quay if you're having a hotel there in Sydney or, or any of these things. And it just means people are available because there's not even that commute factor. So that's the insight. So first thing, it works. It works better. And the second thing I'll say, it's better for the client, student, whatever, attendee more than anything. And the main reason I was really worried about this one thing, which was heart factor, like to be able to reach out and touch someone because you can't actually do that. And I thought that's why you can't, you know, if you're offering a program, which can, you know, it's often in programs can range from $500 to multiple thousands of dollars, sometimes even more without that heart connection. So I thought it, it would be impossible to actually, you know, show someone that, Hey, we have this path and this option for you to succeed, but it won't work if you're not in person. Boy, was I wrong it actually works better. Because maybe people are craving social interaction and wanting to be a part of something. I mean, clearly when you go to a physical event, you park your life at the door, you get on the plane, you start to get a whole new perspective and then you're meeting and interacting. Like This is why I think we're so lucky. We got to build our business in that real world to be able to capitalise on it virtually. I wonder if someone can network or grow in a virtual only environment from today. What do you think about that? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Like, I would be the last person in the world to actually ever say this, but you don't need live in person. Because you're an extremely social person, right? You're like one of those extroverts people talk about. I think it's Sinek, Simon Sinek. He says, you know, introverts start the day with five coins and during the day they spend them and then they're exhausted, they're depleted. Extroverted people, they start on zero and they go out and they gather coins the more they interact with people. And I thought... That explains my friend in a way. I'm in debt 50 coins when I wake up. <laughs> That's right. And you, you are like very social. And so this is why it's great for me to have people like you as a litmus test of what's possible. So someone who I would have thought is the most suited to in-person events is still saying it is possible to do virtual events. It is possible to start now if you didn't get the run-up of the in-person events. Where do you think the place will be for in-person events when they're achievable? Look, I reckon they're for um, camaraderie and they're for 
community. Bonding. And bonding. Masterminding. Yeah. Yeah. So you might, for example, I know you see you'd never run a person event, but you might find- I didn't say never. I just felt that that was the last time I'd really wanted to run it for quite some time because for context- I do get exhausted at the events. I, after a two-day event or whatever, and seeing my customers, hundreds of them, I just, you know, because I have so much buffer space in my life. For example, this is literally the only call that I'm doing today, and it's the first call that I've done for two weeks. <laughs> like, I like lots and lots of white space in my life, and I can deal with intensity on short bursts, and I've designed my life around a 15-hour week. So when you go and jam 15 or 20 hours worth of compacted experience into two days, it's intense. And the second thing is, it's a lot of work to run an event, and especially if you only do one a year. It's just all the stuff that the clients don't really appreciate having to organize the venue, having to organize the team, having to print things, order stuff, come up with the content, schedule it, record it, pay for everything. I mean, immediately, like 60, 80 grand goes out of your pocket. You get the money back in, you end up with some content and great relationships. So there was a high effort involved for the way that I was doing it, but it was also the glue that bonded my community. So I'm sure there will be a place for it again one day, but yes. My prediction. Yeah, it's moved to Zoom and virtual and it will go that way, just like people working from home. Oh, I think people are hungry for in-person. They're hungry. Yeah. I think people who did those events 100% will now find a relatively equal split between in-person and virtual. And I think that it's logical if you're doing in-person to do all of the streaming options and to involve people. Instead of now doing it in Zoom, you might be doing it in a venue with a local audience, but with a far greater external audience. I'm going to be in a very lonely island here and say no. Okay. Um, I know the hybrid model is you get best of both worlds. But for me, you can't dance at two weddings at the same time, right? And if I have the people in front of me, and I try this, you know, in both ways. If you have, you know, a live audience while you're streaming or you're streaming with a live audience, you have to be focused because each medium has its own nuances, right? Like, for example, in an audience, you might say, you know, put your hands up like this, but in a virtual, it might be click the button or type in yes or awesome into the chat bar. You can't really be doing that. It's schizophrenic and you need to be giving, your audience have turned up for you. So you need to be giving them everything you've got and focus on them. And if you're trying to serve this audience and that audience, you know, you end up really trying to please everyone. So you see yourself doing a physical only not streamed and then a streamed only not physical. Right. I like that. It does make sense the way you say that. And because you've done both at a deep level, you understand this. You've had to make some choices along the way. For example, at one stage, you were talking about what kind of infrastructure is required to put on a proper streaming event. We're not talking about, you know, my setup here, just flicking on a camera and doing a Zoom. We're talking about switching and presentations and bringing in multiple speakers and moderating chats, et cetera. What choices did you have to make and how did you feel about them in hindsight? Yeah, okay. So firstly, my prediction was that I'd be able to save a lot of money by not having all these things. It actually isn't a huge cost saver, but what it is, which I was expecting, here's what I was expecting, it would be a lot cheaper, right? And I was expecting it'd be relatively as difficult to pull off, actually more difficult, right? And it was actually the inverse. So cost-wise, really, all you're saving on is the room hire, right? And now room hire is probably dropped significantly. If you want to go get a seminar room. Not where I used to run the seminars because they always want to sell food and stuff and it was always expensive. So you're saving on food, right? You're saving on flights for speakers, right? But that's it, really. The seminar on the food and speakers, right? Now you might go, well, you're saving on the equipment, but no, even though you might not have all the lighting and all the expensive audio, you still need a person there 
who's there the whole time, who's a tech person. And you want to get someone whose job or experience it is that runs these, that by the time you've got them, they've already done five this month. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what my guy who filmed my event, Marty Hankins, he switched immediately to doing virtual summoners for my clients. I actually recommended them. Yeah. And your guy too, Dan, you know, he did my audio, Dan. Dan Steinhauer. Yeah. Absolute magician. Did a great job. And he's been doing your events. So what you're saying is don't skimp on the same production values that you would have in a proper event yeah. for your online event. Yeah. Now you had to decide, are you going to go and hire a venue or a studio to do this, or are you going to do it from home? We had that discussion. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember? Yeah. 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 We did have that one. And I was looking at getting a venue and I just want to give you some context is probably the biggest thing that scared me about doing these live events is that I've been living between Germany and Australia, right? So I came to Australia and I didn't have my permanent setup. So I had a webinar I can share. I spent, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on advertising for a webinar and it was a big launch. And then I got a new co-working space. You know, they closed after 5 p.m., but they let me in. And then at 40 minutes, right, which is where I, you know, I'm letting people know about the path forward and if they want to join me, the internet died. And I didn't, I didn't realize, you're laughing now, but I didn't realize that um, the internet that I connected to had a free internet for 40 minutes and then it cut off at exactly that precise moment. And um, uh, <laughs> Well, here's how, you can, uh, here's how we can help you on your journey. <laughs> oh, no. yeah, you couldn't imagine. Hey, I've got a sound effect for that one. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and, and then that was it. And then I had trauma, like because I'm like all this for you know, oh. and it just it fell apart. Well, all the, you know, your advertising money sunk. Right. The people on the webinar are like, "Where's Brendan yeah. gone?" And then I'm literally running around begging people, "Please, can I use your computer and your internet?" Here's like a hundred dollars. Like you give me a hundred dollars to borrow your computer for twenty minutes. Yeah, here it is. And they're like, "Yeah, but I couldn't connect." All I found all I had to do was forget the network and remember it again, and that would have fixed it. But that gave me the trauma. When you're thinking of all the other stuff, that's not on your mind, you know. I've been there. Anyone who's got an online business has been there. I've been in Avignon where the internet was 0.02 Mbps. I recorded my lunatic millionaire training there, and I was essentially ended up recording it for myself. <laughs> and then there was a, another one because I think it jammed on the second slide and that's all they could see for an hour. Yeah. I also, I couldn't get a connection in Egypt. So traveling can be oh, yeah. a real challenge. Yeah. And I think I said to you, you need a minimum of two internets if you're going to be running it yeah. from home yeah. and three's great. Yeah. So I end up getting the most beefy internet you could get, right? So it's like the most expensive you can get, 150 bucks a month. 1,000 download, 50 upload, and that's my primary and my backups, like a 5G backup modem, and then my backup backups to another one. So, like, I was so, like, ready. like Redundancy, you know, prepared. And so you actually have more control in your own home than you do in a studio. Right. In some ways. Right, because you can set up. And really, the 80-20 rule or the 64-4 rule in this case, you know, 64% of the results come from 4% of the output. Is I love it when you talk dirty. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> um, it's just having amazing, really just knowing that the internet is solid. Yeah. Like, you know, you could, people worry about, oh, what about the background and all this? Look, this is the same background I use for events that have hundreds of people, right? It doesn't really matter. It's the content and the interaction that really matter, you know, but people focus on the wrong thing. So the internet's really cool. And just to share you a story. So I'd been, you know, for 12 months, I hadn't run events, possibly even longer. I run my first online virtual event. Right. And I'm so, you know, want to make sure everything's right. Got the internet done. The best tech guy, Dan Steinhauer, amazing, perfect studio, you know, marketing, everything was done perfectly. And again, I get to the point where I'm letting people know the way forward. 
And just as I'm at maybe about 10, 15% of the way through just explaining that, the fire alarm goes off in the building that's never gone off before, ever. And it wasn't just, woo, it was like evacuate, evacuate, a voice comes over, it's creepy, but evacuate the building. This is not a drill, evacuate the building. And I just looked up and said, good one, you got me again, you got me again. And I just laughed and I just knew at that point I would be okay. What'd you say, coffee break, guys? (laughs) Actually, this is actually a good lesson, a very good lesson, because I actually, this is one of the things, I happen to have a speaker in Los Angeles or a presenter in Los Angeles who had amazing content. And all I did was he was up next. And I said, guys, obviously we can't continue with the shenanigans going on here in the fire alarm. So Casey, you ready? We're going to cut to you. And then he went out and I went for a walk and got a coffee. And I will say the other thing is we talked about the cost, but in terms of the convenience side, now people don't talk about marketing stamina enough, right? This is the idea you can run a campaign, but if it's so exhausting, like you've mentioned it yourself, you don't want to run a... a well, that's what I, I mean, I deliberately don't do launches. I deliberately don't run a lot of events. I celebrate lack of drama and compared to many other people, I'm, I'm going to say compared to anyone I talk to, I have the least drama in my life because I've designed it that way on purpose. Okay. Now, Other people have these high leveraged, performance-oriented, tuned business models that completely detonate easily. And I've got a diesel locomotive. I could do this, you know, I can do stuff for 10 years. That's what we talked about at the beginning of this episode. Yeah. I can do something for 10 years to get the result I want. Yeah. Whereas everything can be like kind of all the focus on one intense, like the tip of the inner blue flame, which is kind of the area operating. And some people love that they're attracted to that, like a moth. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it is. And then we all know what happens to the moth. Some people right? want drama. They create drama, yeah. you know. And so it comes back to your own software to some extent. Yeah. And then there's a lot of choices to be made. When you and I make these decision-making things, I take always, I'm always the one pointing out, where's the redundancy? What happens if that fails? How do you protect yourself from this? What would be the negative consequences of that versus the positive consequences? So I'm always trying to calculate the potential ways that it could go. And that's something that comes as a default for me. Yeah. And so I automatically build things that last. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. And it, it, it is a lot less difficult, a lot less dramatic. I'm literally doing my presentation, which I'd, I used to do it in a, a seminar room. And then I would go up to my, because I'd be on three hours later while the other speaker would speak. I'd go, realize that I'd forgotten my key, right? I'd go up to the room, realize, go, go down to reception. There's a queue of eight people. And I'm like, oh, should I push in for a key? Oh, I can't really wait like 15 minutes. Then they'll go, oh, can I have a key? Oh, where's your ID? It, it's in my room. And then, you know, um, someone had to escort me up to the room to check it with me, show my passport. Sorry, sir. Thank you. Here's your key. And then by the time I got to sleep, I was on again, you know, and uh, here I literally do my event and I'd be like, you know, seeing a couple of hours, Dan, what am I on? You're on at 2.30. So 2.25, set my alarm, close my door. I'm sleeping in my own bed with my own pillows while the tech team are in my living room and people are coming in and out of the apartment, right? So this is not, you don't need a huge suite or anything, literally an apartment. Mm. I think at one stage I recommended you could just rent another apartment. Yep. Like Eben Pagan did to record all his other, his content. I remember that. Uh, now, I don't know if he rented it or if he owned it, but it's actually, this is a trend, right? A trend is to just use residential properties. I think they did this in Silicon Valley, right? Facebook and all this, they probably started in houses. Just a residential property is plenty good enough to create content these days. You don't need a commercial premises. You don't need a rented office. You don't need a full-on studio somewhere else. 
I run my business from this place. I've, I really only create content in this part of the house. That's all I do here and exercise. And that's it. And this is now my office. So I did two in my living room. And then the third one, like the third one, I said, no, actually, I'm just going to convert this room into the studio so that I don't take up my living room. That's what I suggest, a walk-in, walk-out setup. That's what I have here. I turn the light on, the camera, and the sound recording device. I've got an iMac. It never unplugs. I never have to change settings. It's just a dedicated content machine. Everything that I've got here is probably only seven or $8,000 tops to get a very good level of quality. Yeah. That's all you need. You don't need to spend a bunch of money on it. And you need a Mark Richards custom surfboard as a backdrop, which would obviously be tax deductible if it's for filming. I, I, sorry, I thought it was the Warner Brothers logo. Well, that's why he got in a bit of trouble for kind of ripping off the Warner. He's a classic, quiet, introverted guy who wore bright fluoro wetsuits and had the most colourful surfboards in the 70s, late 70s. From 1978 to 1982, he won four world championships on this twin fin. Wow, that's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you, yeah. so um, you can have the background. Look, if the background resonates with your personality, like yours, that's great. You're into health, so you've got the exercise ball happening as well. Well, I've got osteoarthritis, and if I don't wrap myself around that every now and then, I turn into the tin man. I think the point is that we make assumptions about what we think the audience wants based on our own beliefs. And really, all they want is to learn the content that they're after and get an improvement in their life. And just the time that you're with them should be hitting as many different information points as possible to get them delivered in the best possible way to get them closer to their goal as quickly as possible. That should be the only goal. And do you think that when you say hitting all as many, do you think there's a limit? Like, for example, I've heard people saying in a good training, it might be just two or three points that you really, or even one point that you really need someone to know and to believe before they can buy. Yeah, You definitely want to make sure that you don't overload them with too much information. Every rookie speaker does it. I did it. My very first presentation live was at a seminar in Sydney. And I actually went to just to see a friend of mine, Andrew Clacey, and to see him speak. And he said, listen, I've got to go home. You're going to have to take my spot tomorrow. (laughs) I said, I'm not a speaker. And he goes, yeah, you'll be fine. And he told the promoter, this guy, he's better than me. He'll speak. And I delivered this 90 minutes of content that I imagine would be like a three-day course. And one person purchased from me, a lovely lady called Sally, and she came up to me at the end and she says, I don't understand a word you said, but you seem honest. So I'm really excited to go with your program. And uh, (laughs) I'm like, wow. You know, it's like I was thrilled that someone bought, but I delivered far too much. And we all do that when we start out. And the secret is really to deliver the least amount possible so that there's a balance between comprehension and desire and also empowerment. You want them to feel like they're progressing. But it's lovely to hear you say that really the whole purpose of what you're trying to do is for someone to have a better result. Yeah. That's why we do this, right? We want them to be better off. Yeah, you do. And understand 90% of the people are not going to continue with you down your path. And that will be the only experience I have with you. And 10% will right? And based on your sales and marketing, those numbers can be increased or decreased, right? So you just want to make sure that the people who are there have inspiration, that they go out more, whatever the topic is, whether it's importing, selling online, Amazon, e-commerce, surfing, super fast business, whatever it is, that they now leave more excited, enthused, and they believe that they can get there faster and that there is a path. Whether or not they walk that path and have you as the guide, You want to make sure that that is a clear, delineated way for them to move forward that they can get excited about. 
And that's really it. Your job is to inspire them because in six months from now, or even six days from now, life gets in the way. I'm not going to remember a damn thing you said, not anything, just that's it. So you inspire them and give them, you know, the best you can at the time and deliver that energy as much as the content. We're kind of covering the sort of topic of content versus selling. You know, you mentioned earlier, there was a point in your presentation when you start to offer people the pathway forward to be able to come on board with you. Yep. You've done so many presentations live and online. What would be your advice to someone who's preparing an online presentation for their product? Could I ask if you're talking about a back-end presentation or a virtual? Yeah, let's put some parameters here. Let's say we're talking about a fairly higher cost investment, let's say you know, ten or $20,000. That's an application process yep. where someone's already bought something before. They're quite a, a proven list because I know that's the market you're dealing with and very, very, very good at it, like you're the benchmark. So let's imagine someone's listening to this podcast They've already sold something for a couple of hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars and they've got a qualified audience of people they want to go and offer a higher ticket program to by application. Let's make that the rules here. Okay, cool. And sorry, what is the actual question? I understand that's a parameter. The question is, how would you prepare your presentation? Okay. Sort of started off with the content versus selling, but what is the structure? Okay, or like, If you're planning that, yep. so I've just put someone in front of you who's already sold something. They want to put together a $20,000 program and you say to them, look, this is how I would do the presentation. Okay, cool. So um, the minimum amount of time, if you're going to be selling in person at the event, then it's three days. If you're going to do it via an application process, then you can do it in two days. Right? That's my preference because it's a Saturday and Sunday. So you have to realize that that's about, you know, I like to go from in the morning from about 9.30 a.m. till about 5 p.m. and the next day 9.30 a.m. till about 5 p.m., right? So that's your timings. And uh, I like to, on the evening of the first event of the first day, have a Q&A session that goes for 90 minutes where people can ask their own questions because they need that bit of interaction, right? So you have your lunch breaks as well. They're 45 minutes each. We have a three or four 15-minute breaks, recesses as well, and that's your structure, okay? Now, all those things should be delivered. Content pieces, each content piece should be about an hour to two hours, depending on the speaker, right? It's okay for someone to do a presentation, have a break, and then come back and do the rest. So that's your content. That's your overall skeleton. Now, let's put the meat on it, okay? So in terms of the meat, is it's very important that you understand that these people have been, marketers have really screwed it up right? So that's a threat, but also an opportunity. It's a threat because they're going to walk into that two-day event or three-day event, whatever it is, assuming that you're going to be trying to sell them something really, really expensive that maybe they don't need and using clever salesmanship and razzle-dazzle and get them all hot and bothered and excited and just you know do it old school marketer style. That's their assumption, right? So you need to flip that on its head. And the way you do it, it's very simple, is you just literally just focus on all of the content and leave the marketing and the sale and everything to the side, you don't earn the right to actually offer them anything until you've actually delivered value. Yeah, I literally wait until the end of the first day before I even mention the offer. And that's quite refreshing to people. And I even call it out at the start. I said, who here has been to an event where, you know, this person tries to sell you something? Well, look, just be clear, no money exchanges hands. That's a very strong argument, that one. I mentioned this in a coaching call recently. Just let people know early that yeah. there's nothing for sale here. Yep. You're here for the training that was promised. Yep, and that's it. And you could tell them that you will let them know other ways that they can work with you yeah. at a later stage. It could be that simple. Yeah, and if you count the 17 hours of my event, there's 20 minutes of what you would call inverted commas pitching. That's it, 20. You've probably earned that yeah. and most people would. Well, actually, a portion of the people 
will want to know how they can continue to be better off through investing oh, yeah. in your products or services. Like they'll be asking you, what else have you got or yeah. how do we get on board? Yeah, exactly. And if it's the end of the day, it's cool. And then what I like to do on the lunch break of the second day, which I learned from my friend Paul O'Mahony, uh, Rethink Digital, and he's amazing. He just said, yeah, on the, look, a lot of people will actually turn up to the first day because it's a virtual event and they'll just come on the second. So they wouldn't have heard the offer. Mm. So at the lunchtime on the second day, not during training time, I'll say, look, go have your lunch, spend time with your family, you know, go get yourself a sandwich, whatever it is, and chill if that's what you want. Now, if you weren't here yesterday or you just want to understand, you know, a little bit more detail about the offer, then, you know, I'm going to go take a break for 10 minutes. I need to eat too. I'm going to come back in 10 minutes. You can eat in front of me. You know, just don't be afraid if I ask you what you're eating. And then I'm going to be, um, you know, just spending the lunch break on my time, on non-training time, explaining that if you want. So if you've already put an application, fantastic. You want to, you don't need to. But if you want to actually hear more, that's cool too. And then, you know, what surprisingly, because that was the first time I did it, was, you know, a couple of months ago, almost everyone wanted to stay anyway. It's pretty common, isn't it? It's like the boxed lunch at the in-person events. Yeah. I know Paul. He's a lovely guy. Yeah. So what about other things? Like do you ever have sort of breakout rooms or other tech like that? Yeah. So this is where you really do need a good person, right? I'm sure this is the advanced. Yeah. You know, don't try this one on your first outing. (laughs) Or do if you have a tech person. If you've got a tech person. Yeah. Who's done it, right? And I've actually, just to be completely transparent, there are two tech people. Mm. There's one person who's in the living room or the office with me doing all the sound and and that. And then there's another one actually running the Zoom. Yeah. Right? What's good, like obviously you, the presenter slash, you know, director of this thing, you need to be just in your zone. And I do that at my own event. My good friend Sean and Steve-O and Kerry, they take care of stuff. Like I know if someone's going to come up to me in the break or whatever, Sean will be there with my food and drink and helping me. You know, if, when he tells me when I need to go back on or get mic'd up or whatever. You need a crew. Yeah, you You've do. got to have a crew if you're going to do this professionally. I think it might be useful, and we'll come back to your question, if I just tell you exactly the crew I use, because that would be really valuable. I would want to know that. if I Yeah, was. Oh, I was going to ask that anyway. What's your crew? <laughs> okay, do you want me to jump on that now or later? Yeah, I want some technical stuff. I want to know, okay. I want to know the crew. Yeah. I want to know what sort of numbers you would expect sure. for people who registered to come and then to buy. If you're prepared to share any of that, of course, yeah, no. you don't have to. Open book. But, the, I mean, it would be useful since someone's out there doing it. Sure, sure. Okay, cool. So. Um, Okay, so let's talk about crew. So firstly, I have a person who's calling every person who registered and and telling them about what they can expect at the event, but also telling them that if they have a partner that might be involved in any decision to do the business that that partner attends, because that's going to be very important when you actually have a conversation about joining a program later on. So you preempt that. And then you tell them about the bonuses they're going to get in the event, which you deliver. I just give them at the end of the day. So they're excited about the bonuses. And then you tell them that this is the time and you really do need to be there on time and be, you know, hire a babysitter or you need to and just be upfront because generally when I run an event in a locality, I don't run one for quite a while. I go to another locality. So you tell them, look, this may be the only chance that we have to interact with you. So it's make sure you make it count. So do everything. And then what we found is that, uh, and this is what blew me away, right? So Originally, I was going to fly to Dallas and Orlando to do an event expecting a you know, 20% show up rate or whatever registration. We're getting like half the people who register show up. 50%. 50%. Mm. Like, what? I said don't go. <laughs> yeah, you said don't go. <laughs> like, why, why would, and look, you covered that. Sure, there's going to be different time zones, but you can sleep in your own bed. Right. You don't lose a week of travel time. You, yeah. you know, you, it gives you other options. and cho- Like you can travel the world much more effectively if you're doing it virtually. Yep. 
So, yeah, so that's absolutely true. So you have that ability yet yeah, also in terms of time zones is, you know, I ran one in American time zone. So I'm literally getting up at 3 a.m. to start an event that's running till 11 a.m. Sydney time, right? But like, you know, that, oh, that's terrible. You've got to, you know, get up in the middle of the night. Yeah, but, but the aeroplane flight, there's 14 hours. Right, exactly. So it's just two days, right? But that gives me the stamina. I know I can do an American event anytime I want. One next weekend, the one weekend after. I don't care if it's the UK, it's 8 p.m. till whatever. And if it's Australia, then my American speakers. It's always funny. My American speakers were making fun of me when we actually had to run the event on their time. They're like, oh, this one's an easy one for us because it was their turn to have the easy wake-up time. So, yeah, so that's it. So in terms of the, the, the presentation, it's very important that actually the presentations relate to the offer. That's a very, very big one. Mm-hmm. For example, part of it, I'll, I'll help people actually design all of their packaging for you know their whole Amazon business. So we have a designer, actually fellow Silver Circle member or Superpartners member, Alan Nunes, does all my design, does a great job for me, my Amazon packaging, whatever. He's always done the workbooks for the Superfast yeah. Business live event. Amazing. Great. Amazing human. Does printing as well. Printing as well. He's a real good human as well. And he, you know, he was, you need an Alan as well, someone to help you prepare and cover the contingencies. You also do need a brochure. He did a great job with a brochure. So basically the offer, we used to hand them out like to people. So now it's just a link. And, you know, that's, yeah, you just make sure that, look, if you want to know more, I might speak fast. I might mumble a little bit. I'm sorry. So there is, there's a brochure you can download and have a read of that in your own time or, you know, show anyone. So look, just going back to the crew, just be very on point. So you do need someone to call and register. You want to do that maybe seven days out. If it's, you know, more than two days out, maybe you don't, you know, one or two days out, that's it. And then you want to make sure that um, even the people that didn't pick up, you call or you SMS and you make sure you connect with them. One thing we found, and this is some secret sauce just for your members, right, is that statistically, the people who actually ended up taking advantage of joining the program had a very high correlation to the people we actually spoke to at the start. If we actually were able to confirm them, they had a high chance of buying. I don't really know why that's such a strong connection, but it is. And that's worth noting. So that's why there's a high, let's say, ROI on that. And it, it just does, it doesn't have to be a radio announcer. You can have a virtual team as long as they have good pronunciation and speak English well, then you're totally fine. And you'll need a CRM software as well. I'll, I'll go through that later, but okay. Other members, you'll need a moderator, an actual Zoom manager. You'll need a tech person. And I also like to have actually one person manning the chat. Yep. That's it. And then as many speakers as you need to cover the content. I will typically speak for about maybe, I'm doing maybe uh, 40% of the entire speaking for the event. And then speakers will do a collection. And then one thing as well, which is very, very beneficial is to make sure that you've watched the speaker's presentations before they've actually delivered it. I always sit in the room at my own event and watch every single presentation and make notes because it's nice to bookend them, to summarize for the audience what we've learned so far, and then to stack the whole event into some logical order. Right, exactly. And also it's it's sometimes very important that the speakers may say some things which aren't actually conducive or might not fit with overall philosophy of the event. And you just want to watch every single speaker. You've got to curate them if they're going to go in front of your audience. I always want to see their slides and I talk yeah. to them about, well, one thing I do, this is huge, and I'll do this in any format, is I survey my audience before the event. And I find out what question would they ask Brendan if Brendan's speaking. And I would put the information to my presenters and say, here's who's coming to the event. This is what they want to know. This is who's in the room. This is what businesses they have. This is where their revenue levels are at. These are the questions they would want to ask you. And then I get to see their presentation so that it is a cohesive 
thing. And when they do come up with something that's a counter narrative to what my own philosophy would be, I have seen it and heard it. So I'm able to then give people uh, a different perspective if it's required. But it didn't actually happen as much when I put more pre-work into my event. And one more tip. And a lot of the, the, the things that I'm just trying to think of what I would have, if I could go back five or whatever. Yeah. What, what would you tell yourself at yeah. the beginning of this journey? March, 2020, Brendan, this is what you're going to need to yeah. do. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, look, I'm used to running a presentation with an offer on a stage. And I just, for some reason, the idea of doing it over a Zoom where I couldn't connect with people, look them in the eyes, so they could feel like I really believe in what I'm offering. I felt I couldn't do that. So what you do is literally you go back, like whatever offer you have on stage or whatever it is, you go back to offer. And you think, how can I just make this so bloody awesome, so amazing with so many things that just no one else is offering? How can I give them? And that usually translates to more one-on-one attention than anyone else is prepared to give. And when you're presenting, do you have the other participants on a screen? Yeah. Oh, okay. This is a great question. Yeah. So like, so literally in front of me will be a camera, mm-hmm. right? Pointing directly at me. And there'll be four screens. Yep. Or we now do it in one screen that's split in four ways. Yeah. Yeah. And in one top right, and it doesn't matter where the position is, it's just my preference. Sure. Top right is my PowerPoint presentation, yeah, which has, you know, whatever notes I need to say on the slide. Generally, a pitch is enough to evoke it. You don't need the notes. And then bottom left will be a timer, which will tell me how long till the next break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is important that someone manually presses start <laughs> because, because you could be speaking right. Yeah. Well, I mean, as a speaker, you always need someone doing the timekeeping or you, yeah. you'll be lost up there. Yeah. And, um, Exactly. It's very, very important. And you've got to be conscious that you stay on time because dominoes. If you come to my event, you know it finishes exactly. I've got Kerry Finch in the front row with an iPad with the timer countdown. And everyone knows you have to come off no matter where you're up to, you have to come off at that time. Yep, exactly. And then um, if it's top left and bottom right will be me seeing the participants. And the sweet spot, you need at least 50 participants because here's what happens about more and more people will hide the camera or choose not to do the camera than we'll have the camera on. And for you to actually interact with an audience, you need enough cameras on. If you raise your hand and there's one camera, because not everyone's going to do it. So you, for me to have the feedback that I need as the third child, the youngest child, to actually feel like there's an audience and I'm getting anywhere, anything less than 50 attendees with Zoom, for example, there's just not enough cameras for people to actually interact with you that it kind of falls flat. And did the technology carry it okay, the, the volume? How many people are you getting on these calls? So, yeah, look, we've ranged from... So if I had one event, we had 360 booked and 160 show up, which is pretty much 50%, 45 yeah. or something. Cool. So we're talking 160, 110, one with 80. So it's quite manageable. Yeah, it is. It's exactly, I normally have 180 people in my own room. So it's like, it's exactly the same yeah. audience size. And what's really interesting though, is looking at how many participants, like, so right now I look at our chat, there's two, right? And you're there. And I was expecting, because I believe there'd be less engagement. So I thought, you know, and I know when I'm doing presentations, when people leave the room, I'm presenting, there might be 108 people. If one person gets up and walks out the door, I feel like I failed. But so it's exactly like a real room. You're trying to look, you look, obviously you can't take in 180 people at once. So when you're speaking, you, I mean, I've learned and teach my rookie speakers who I put on stage for the very first time, I teach them about the lighthouse and I tell them this and you've got to sort of sweep like a lighthouse to make sure that you're speaking to the whole audience because so some people fixate on just this person in front of them and they ignore everyone else and they yeah. feel disconnected. So just having a gentle lighthouse sweep will give you a, an inclusion. Yeah. And I imagine with the Zoom, you're going to be able to look at different people or notice someone come or, or you could use some of the funny lines like my comedian friends if someone comes back in it's like oh welcome welcome back let's just bring you up to date where we're up to and then you recap the entire seminar for you know in, in two minutes so anyway um 
So that's your team. Yep. That's the technical setup. Yep. What things surprised you the most that you think is essential that we should know if we're going to take this on, if we're going to run a couple of day event? Okay. So firstly, people stay. They don't leave if you've got good content. I was worried that because it was virtual, it won't stick. So what I'm surprised, the first thing that surprised me is that how well it works. Yeah. That really, I had all these preconceived beliefs. So that'll be the first thing. The second thing I would say is that make sure that you have the best possible offer that you can possibly imagine to the point where there's nothing else you could add. There's nothing conceivably you could add to your offer that would put the client, student, attendee in a better position. In a better position. If you do that, then something in your mind quiets down. Yeah, it's finished. And then you find that when you're actually doing the offer part, it's like an energy just literally comes through you because it's like- Because you're excited for them. You're excited for them. Mm. You know, and I actually, and I think I got this from you, James, and this is really beneficial. And I say it, I actually say it. I said, look, here's the thing. If we feel that our offer is not going to be a good fit for you or us, or we don't, we actually feel that you might be in a weaker position having worked with us or working together, we're just not going to you know, offer an opportunity for us to work together because we're not going to help you. But conversely, if we feel this is a good fit and we can actually make it better off and we believe you're going to actually execute on it, then we'll open a position for you and we can move forward. But generally that north light is, is the student going to be better off on that journey? That's it. It's better off or not better off and, and, and never ever take a client who won't be better off and life will be drama free. <laughs> Yeah. You tell them, look, some of this will be a terrible idea for you. Some of you have like, you know, you're just not ready to do a business. You're in the moment where you're buying a property, you're selling a property, someone in the family has an ailment. Like timing, if the timing's not right, you don't say to them, look, it's not no, it's just not now. Come back where you're ready. We'll be here. And when the student is willing, the teacher will be there. So if you go from that where you're having a like, you know, the market are pushing, pushing, pushing a sale to literally just going, the North Star is I will offer the best possible thing I can. And I'll let you know it's available. And I'll let you know that we will filter it and let you know our opinion. And then let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. And they will fall on sale or no sale. But on the law of averages, if you do that enough, it'll just work out. You'll have a great quality product and reviews and all the good stuff. Yeah. So that would be it. So that's important about the offer. This is great. I'm chatting with Brendan Elias here on episode 888. Do you want to drop a link to your website in case people want to figure out how to import better? Sure, that would be fantastic. So they can go to A to Z formula or A to Z formula.com slash podcast. And there's a lot of really cool stuff there for them. Love it. Yep. Brendan, thank you so much for sharing. It's always interesting to me when I have a conversation with you, you inspire and uh, challenge me at times, but it's also, you know, one of the sources of my growth is interaction with you. You, you think differently to me in many ways, but also we've found a lot of common ground over the years and a, a good bond. I'm just curious, knowing what you know now, because you've done both, and you see the landscape is most likely going to change at some point in the future. What's next for you? What are you excited about in the future? I'm really excited of actually going out and um, traveling a bit and finding partners to work with, finding different speakers that I can add to the program. People have different philosophies that I can learn from, even people that I might not necessarily like, but might have, you know, you can always learn something from people. So I'm excited to find little nuggets that I can just keep adding to the course to just add incremental increases to the likelihood and the speed and the volume at which my students get results. So I'm on a learning path and not just from the path of actually giving the right information and content, but delivering things in a way that is palatable and exciting and interesting and engaging that will keep the person motivated as well. Like I know that the coaches and people I have teach my program are amazing, the best you can possibly get. 
but I want to make delivery in a fun package. So I'm enjoying researching that and making the delivery mechanism even better. And also, you know, I'm looking forward to moving away from reliance on Facebook and YouTube and actually forming joint ventures with people who already have programs in a loyal audience that I can combine with and we can work together. I mean, I used to think JVs were a terrible idea because you couldn't just keep replicating them. But um, they're a fantastic idea, especially as a back-end for a back-end offer. So who should be getting in touch with you to talk about that? Look, anyone who's got a program, especially if it's in the, in, in the area of business opportunity, would be valuable would definitely be able to, you know, help your students or help your clients find different ways to actually generate income. But also if you're very much in the e-commerce or Amazon or product space, then it would just be a no-brainer, perfect fit. That would be a good example. Brendo, thank you so much for guesting today. I know I was on your podcast. This may be one of your first guest appearances on someone else's. It is not one of my first, it is the first. (laughs) What a great one. You got episode triple eight out of the gate. It's continuing to be lucky for you. I hope you you have a great year and uh, thank you so much for guesting. Thanks, man. I just want to say thank you for being a great guide and and mentor. Like there's definitely parts of uh, my personality that have just completely, you know, been just engaged and I've learned so much from you and it's really been a great evolution. I love you guys. If you guys are even, you know, uh, thinking twice, I'm actually not just a a guest, but I'm also a member of Superfast Business, even the Silver Circle level. And uh, yeah, I just, there's just no question. If you are willing to put in the effort, it's just, yeah, James, you're amazing. And it's been, uh, I I definitely would have just want to say it and I'll call it out here. I don't know if we would have, you know, been able to adapt or come back as well as we did if it wasn't for the advice we got from you. So really, really appreciate that. Like you, yeah, you've changed my life, not just others. So. Thank you for doing what you do. And thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to present on the most auspicious uh, episode of all, uh, Podcast 888, The Superfast Business. It had your name on it. We lined it up. You've earned it, like we just talked about with the offer. I'm glad you reacted to the market changes and succeeded so wildly. And uh, it's great for your customers and for your team and for you. So well done. Thank you. Cheers. Discover how to build your business super fast. Check out superfastbusiness.com.